this morning as we continue in these moments together. As always, the altar is open if you'd like to come and kneel and make it a place of prayer today. But as we pray, um, we're reminded this week about the way in which life is finite. Each of us only have so many days of life, and the question is, how are we living those days? So we want to remember Barb Holman and pray for her family today. We continue to pray for Bob Squires with the passing of Eva. And so Beva's service will be this coming Wednesday, and it'll be uh, in Montague at St. James Catholic Church. And so if you have more questions, we can let you know. But we want to pray for those families specifically today. We join with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come before you today thankful that you are near. In the midst of the world around us, that there's a God who seeks us and loves us and desperately desires for us to be radically defined by his life and by his love. So, Father, we thank you in these moments that you come near to us. We sing words that remind us that you invite us to come as we are. We don't have to get our lives right before we come to you. But the powerful thing about the way you work is that when we come to you, that's when you begin to make our lives right. So, Father, help us to recognize there is never a place that we can go that is so far from you that you do not come near. That there's never a place we can go that we cannot sense your love for us. So, Father, in these moments, may we find rest in you. May we find hope. We pray today, especially for the Holman family, for Bob Squires and his family. For others who are grieving the loss, we continue to pray for the McElroy family. We, we pray a prayer of blessing over the Nuvals as we pray for Dylan and Brandon. But we also pray right now for several who are expecting children in the near future. And so we pray that you continue to watch over them as well. And Father, we pray as a community of faith that we would look more like you today and tomorrow than we did yesterday. And so will you continue to work in and through us? May our community look radically different by our faithfulness because of what you have done and continue to do in our lives. And this morning, Father, will you speak into our hearts and our minds and our lives. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I didn't plan on doing this this morning. Um, last week, I was at my sister's wedding, and I, I missed an event that I would have loved to have been a part of. And he doesn't know this is happening, but I... I saw Jack and Leanne McCormick slide in. Um, it's good to see you. Jack is a pastor I worked for for several years before I came here, and so he retired last week. And so, um, can't say enough good. It's good to see you. But like I said, I was at my sister's wedding last week. Um, And, and we were in a hurry to get there, and so we're on our way, and Gracie gets carsick. This is a new development in our lives. Um, and so we were almost to Benton Harbor, and she says, I don't feel so good. I think I'm going to get sick. Well, she'd just done this a few weeks ago and actually gotten sick all over the car. So, so we're scrambling. We found a coffee cup. Um, it worked, thank goodness. So then we stopped, and we're at McDonald's, and then as we continued further in the drive, there's this stretch where we go from, US, from Interstate 65 to US 41, and so there's this two-lane road for about 10 miles, and, and on that drive, we got behind the slowest driver ever. The speed limit's 55, they didn't break 45 the entire time, and there's a steady stream of cars coming the other way, so I could not pass them, and my wife goes, just be patient. 
what? How long have you known me? <laughs> and so I, I, I didn't pass them, but we were hurrying to get there. We were in just such a hurry because I wanted to get there. We had the rehearsal and the, the wedding and all that stuff. And so we finally got there. And, and then we got there and I got the schedule, which we were almost there. And my sisters texted us the schedule. Why do you need us there six hours before this wedding? That's a terrible idea. So we nicely informed her, we're not coming six hours before the wedding um, with our children, so pick a new time. <laughs> we weren't the only ones who said the same thing. So then we, we backed it up, and so my brother and I went and played golf. We were the first group out in the morning on that Saturday, because now I didn't have to be there so early. It's a great deal for me. But we couldn't figure out why this group behind us kept playing so fast. Why wouldn't they be just patient? If they would just wait, we would be done. I saw my brother, he goes, I hate being rushed. Because I just wish this group was patient. <laughs> the irony of it all, right? Like, when you're in a hurry, have you noticed this? I mean, maybe it's just me, but when you're in a hurry, you think everybody else should be in a hurry. And when you're not in a hurry, you think no one else should be in a hurry. And I, and I know we all get different ways when we get impatient. I mean, some people are hangry. Maybe you know what hangry is. Maybe you define hangry. It's when you're hungry and angry and you, you, you're both. Um, I have some family members like that, so I will not pick on them. I'm not that person, by the way. Some of you are. I've been around you. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? Like, we're impatient. We're impatient. We go to, to places where they serve us to eat, and we get impatient because our waitress, how dare they take longer it doesn't matter they have 10 tables and everyone came at the same time, but how come they can't refill my drink faster? Well, that one, that one kind of hurt a little because that one's true for a lot of us, right? But how often are we impatient about the wrong things and patient about the right things? Not very often. I mean, have you noticed how sometimes we're in such a hurry that we miss opportunities around us for good stuff? We miss the opportunity to be a part of the good right where we are because we're in such a hurry. <laughs> or maybe we're just not ever in a hurry and we should be occasionally. See, we've been exploring the book of James this summer. We'll continue to explore James today. In fact, next week will be our last week in the book of James. And next week we'll talk about some ways this really applies to us here as a local community of faith. And I really hope you'll be here next week as we talk about that. But, but today, we're looking at this passage from James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12. And we've been looking, looking at James's writings because James writing particularly to people who are part of a church already. His, his writing is not really for people who are on the outside. I mean, there's some really practical things of living. One of the things that I hope we have begun to pick up and embrace is this. Over and over again, James talks about the way we speak to people, what we say and how we say it. He's consistent about this, like make sure gossip's not a part of what your life looks like. Make sure you talk well of people when you're around them and when you're not around them. I mean, just if nothing else, I mean, whether you believe in Jesus or not today, if you embrace that, people would like you more, right? It's true. So what we begin to see is this, that, that James is writing in such a way that if the church functioned in this way, the rest of the world might actually want to be a part of the church. It's a novel idea that if people looked like Jesus, other people would want to be around them. So we find this morning that that's true of James. So I'll invite you to stand as we read from James chapter 5, verses 7 to 12.
James writes these words. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brother, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, for you will be condemned. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. So I, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I think it's ironic that it talks about farming. I, I really only know one or two farmers, but, but one of them I know. His name's Kevin Reardon. He's a farmer in Illinois. And, and Kevin and I became pretty good friends. And what I noticed about Kevin is he pretty much always was patient. I mean, he just was never really in a hurry. I mean, I noticed this because I would talk to him about, well, when you get in the fields, oh, well, you know, maybe next week, maybe the week after, we'll see. Kind of depends on the rain and the weather and when it dries out and... And I would just say, well, do you ever water, water your crops? He goes, no, I don't have to. I, I don't have sandy soil. You know, sandy soil you have to water. I, I, I don't. I purposely didn't buy any of that. Um, and so I don't, I don't really have to water it. I just, I just wait. You know, if I have to water, it's a bad deal because that means I'm going to lose some money. Um, so I don't want to do that. So I would just talk to him. But what he modeled so often was this calm wisdom as he would wait. And he was available all summer long and all winter long. They worked a million hours those other, that fall and spring season. But he had a lot of patience and a lot of waiting in the middle. And he was pretty good at waiting. But the problem for us is we don't wait well. We're impatient. In fact, James says, here's the deal. Um, Quit trying to figure out when Jesus is going to come back. He's going to. I promise. I promise he'll come back. There will be a day when Jesus returns and makes all the wrongs of this world right. But until that day, quit trying to figure it out. Wait patiently. See, I don't know about you, but I, um, I'm not patient. I try to figure stuff out. In fact, as a kid growing up, I was enamored with trying to figure out when Jesus would come back. Maybe you're that person right now. If you are, stop. Um, but what I just wanted to know. And at one point, someone used a phrase with me that I have tried to live with and embrace. And they just said this, why don't you live every day as if today could be your last or as if you'll live to be 100? All right, it's not a bad, bad phrase. And so I've tried to embrace that for the most part. And so you try to take advantage of every day, but you also plan as if you could live to be 100. And so I, I try to live that way. But as a kid, there was this book series that came out when I was a teenager. It's called Left Behind. Maybe you've heard of it. If you have, don't waste your time reading if you haven't. Um, I've read them all, by the way. I mean, just, just, just so you know, I have. I kind of wish I could get back some of that time. Because I thought like it was just telling me how Jesus is going to come back and what it's going to look like. And so I began to look for signs and all kinds of stuff and all around the world around me. I just thought I could get the inside scoop, and I I kept forgetting about Jesus' words that only the Father knows. (laughs) Oh yeah, (laughs) I'm not him. Right, and I'm enamored with what the end of the world may look like, and maybe you've been there. In fact, so many scholars began to say things like this, that if we get so enamored with trying to find the end that we miss, that's 
God told us we won't find it. And so in, in Christian circles, we use words like blasphemy. It's like talking about God in ways that you don't know what you're talking about. So quit trying. But sometimes we get so enamored with some future event or something out there that we miss the joy in the present. See, sometimes we live in such a way that like, you're like, why would I ever want to be a Christian? Because those people, they're just kind of angry. They keep telling us the world's going to end and it hasn't yet. I mean, they keep, we, people have been saying that for 2,000 years, by the way. I mean, like, we keep saying all this stuff and yet we don't reflect a joy that people would want to be a part of. And yet Jesus lives such a joy-filled life. In fact, I, I love Scully William, William Barclay wrote this about the idea of Jesus coming again. He said, much of the imagery attached to the second coming is Jewish. Part of the traditional apparatus of the last things in the ancient Jewish mind, there are many great things that we are not meant to take literally. Hear that well. But the great truth behind all the temporary pictures of the second coming is that this world is not purposeless, but going somewhere. That there is one divine far-off event to which the whole creation moves. It's God's redemption of all things. It's God redeeming and restoring and making all the wrongs, all the broken things in the world in which we live, right. That's where the world is moving in that direction. And we can choose to hop on and live in such a way that we're a part of the redemption. Or we can be those people off in the corner who really don't impact the world around them. See, this is the reality for us that live with this kind of patience requires humility. That we don't know when Jesus is going to return and we should quit trying to act like we do. It requires embracing this idea that God loves us and he calls us to love others. So if I was to re-summarize this phrase, I might say this, which sounds like another passage of scripture. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few because they're so wrapped up in their own ideas. And in verse 9, James says this, Have you noticed how, how people grumble against one another? I mean, I... I would say this. I mean, maybe you don't notice that people grumble. <laughs> I read your comment cards. I know you do. No. Um, <laughs> don't you see how much I do for the church? Don't you know what I've done? How much I've paid? What I've given? <sighs> I can't believe they do that. <laughs> I would never do that. I can't believe they do that. Don't get me started on their kids. I mean, did you see those kids? They don't listen to anyone. How? If they were my children. Well, they're not. Um, no. Um, right, we can begin. I say those tongue-in-cheek because it's true. <laughs> right, how often have each of us found ourselves going, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. Whoever them is. Right, and so we grumble against one another. I could go on and on with stories, and so could you, unfortunately. See, grumbling is a mark of the world around us. Not a mark of the followers of Jesus. Grumbling is not a mark of the followers of God. I know it's easy to grumble. Believe me, I'm speaking to myself here. I get it. But it doesn't mean it's good. In fact, it's the opposite of good. But so what if, what if rather than grumbling, what if we love people well? 
Right? What if every time we find ourselves grumbling against someone, we just go, well, how can I love them better? What, what if that was our reaction? What if rather than being upset with them or being ticked off or mumbling under our breath words that no one can understand, it was probably a good thing they can't understand? Like, what if instead of that, we began to love people well? What if we found tangible expressions of love to impact their life rather than grumbling? And so what if we began to embrace the words of Jesus as a way of life? Don't grumble against one another. And how often have we grumbled against someone when in reality, if we had just talked to that person, we probably could have resolved an issue. Right? It's really easy to grumble against someone than it is to have a conversation with them. But what if, what if the church began to embrace a way of living where we went to one another when we had issues with each other? Right? I don't know about you, but since most of the world doesn't function that way, like if we didn't use social media for that avenue, but we actually use face-to-face conversation, did you know that people would actually be drawn into that, not pushed away? Like we all have issues with each other. That's just part of the human life. But when the way we resolve those issues is either a reflection of the divine love of God or a reflection of our own brokenness, we get to choose which one we reflect. See, and then there's these words against us that I don't like. That at the end of it says, our grumbling will be held against us. Did you catch that? The way we grumble is held against us. I don't know that I like that. It made me pause. I hope it makes you. Because here's the reason. God judges our hearts. Like the motive. Sometimes we, we're, sometimes we are so loving someone, we don't know how to help them. We're not sure what the right way for love to look in that moment. That's a much different perspective than just talking about something or someone. I mean, the truth is, so often we don't know how to judge our own hearts. Like, we really don't. We're struggling to figure out what our own motives are, how we're living, and what we're trying to do. I mean, it's a hard thing for us. James then goes on to talk about how we speak, how we say yes or no. Um, there's this weird kind of section here where he, I'm not going to spend much time with it, but, but basically James says this, that, that when you speak, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Don't swear about anything. You're like, well, I mean, what? Okay. Like, so this, this is it. I'll make this one as simply as I can. Just be honest. Like, that's it. That's the whole point. Like, there's nothing more to that section. It's be honest. He's repeating the words of his brother Jesus when he said, don't swear. Don't take an oath. If you're honest, your words will be good enough by themselves and you'll need nothing more for that. But here really is the key of this whole section. It's this middle passage that says this. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. James references the prophets and Job's, but let's think about those for a minute. I mean, Job, you, you've all heard his story. Guy's living pretty good, and his life gets screwed up, and he loses his family, and it's just a disaster of a life, and his friends say, oh, just curse God and move on. It's like, no, I'm not doing that. We could look at other, other prophets. Nathan had, to, <clears throat> Nathan had to confront the king about the way the king was living. He'd go to David and go, hey, David, um, let me tell you a story. <laughs> And he goes, that man should be killed. And he goes, that man's you. (laughs) Sorry. 
Eli's sons were a disaster. I mean, read the stories about them. Elijah ran away scared of some lady. I mean, I can keep going on. Jeremiah was always in tears because he looked at how bad the people were and he just cried. I mean, like, this is what happened. We could go on and on about the prophets, about the broken parts of their lives. What each of them experienced was incredible highs and incredible lows. Kind of like us. Kind of like you and me. But here's the thing that James wants us to know. But here's the good news about God. Like he still loves us. He's full of compassion and mercy. That if you live with the kind of patience that says, God, I don't know what's going on in my life. My life is a complete disaster. My life is a wreck. But I believe you're still patient with me and you're still present with me. And I believe you have a better future for me than I have on my own. Right, part of the reason we dedicate kids, the reason we dedicated the Newville's kids earlier today, part of the reason we dedicate children is a reminder that, hey, there's probably going to come a day in their lives when we don't know what to do with them. Some of you have grown children, you know what I'm talking about. And it's the church who says, well, you know what, we're going to love your kids too. In fact, we're going to love them so well that we're going to create opportunity for them to serve and to lead. In fact, some of us will follow them in places of leadership in the church so that we can show them how much they matter to us. Right, like that, that's a pretty big deal. What if we live that way? What if we had the kind of patience that said, you know what, we know you're going to screw up because we all have. And we're going to come beside you anyway. And we're going to say, you know what, we know you screwed up, but we're going to continue to follow you because we trust you. And we know you have better in you. And we're going to help it come to see it come to fruition. Right, so there may be people who have faith that have never really complained or wrestled with doubt or their lives. I mean, there may be those people out there. Maybe you're that person. Um, but here's the thing. I'll say the greater faith is a person who has wrestled and doubted and had questions and still believes. Right, that's a faith that people will probably want to live for. See, I, I think one of the ways the church, we probably screw this up, is we, don't, we haven't always done a good job of creating room for doubt. Have you noticed that? Because you ask a question, we just give you an answer. Even if we're wrong, we still give you an answer. And what if sometimes we just said, you know what, that's a great question. Let's think about it. Let's wrestle that. You know, I used to have that same question. And sometimes it's okay, we go, you know what, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I mean, I don't know about you, but I... Been a, I became a Christian at the age of seven. I've been in the church my entire life. So for 34, almost 35 years of my life, I have known nothing but this, and I still don't have the answer for lots of stuff. I have graduate degrees in this stuff, and I still don't know. I mean, you can tell me you know that I'm more impressed then. <laughs> I don't. But what I, what I do know at the end of the day is I, I believe the reality of Jesus being more true than not true far outweighs the other. And I know this, the moments when I have been close to him, my life has looked radically different than when it hasn't. Does that answer every question? Nope. But I don't think it has to. Because there's something about that wrestling and the doubt. And this is, what, this is what James so desperate wants us to know. Is it okay if you wrestle? It's okay if you question. It's okay if you wonder. Because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. And he wants you to know that you know that you're his. Because he loves you. And James would say, because my brother gave up his life so that you could know God's love to its fullness. 
And see, I think if we created more space for doubt, the church would look radically different. So I've started reading a book called Church Less. It's about the, the kind of decline of people who are part of a church in America. So, so the numbers will tell us from Barna Pruce's study over decades that in the 90s, only about 30 about 30% of people said they weren't part of a church at all. Now, that, they may have been like people who went like Christmas and Easter or whatever it was. But only like 30% of America said they weren't a part. Then in the early 2000s, it was 33%. So it increased by 3%, which doesn't sound like much, except for that's millions of people. And then in 2014, I can't tell you today, but I can tell you the numbers have continued to increase at a more rapid rate than before this. 43%. Um of Americans say they're not a part of a church in any way, shape, or form. So a 10% increase in less than 10 years. And I'll tell you today that, that just ballpark by most studies I've read, it's more like 50% today. All right, next week we're going to talk about our local community. Like I'm, I'm just this community, which is actually higher numbers than that, by the way. So we'll talk about that next week, but... So I've been reading about the reasons why, like, church less. And some of you aren't even sure you want to be a part of a church. And so for you, like, you are the person I would love to talk to. Because one of the reasons that, that has been listed is because there hasn't been room for doubt or conversation. And so people go, well, if, if all these people have it all together, I don't think I'm welcome there. Good point. Right? Those numbers disheartening to us in some ways, Right? In fact, I think we sometimes forget, and I know it because I hear it in conversation, that we sometimes forget that the church is the only organization in the world that exists for the people who are not yet a part. But so often in our conversations, I don't hear that. And neither do people outside the church. In fact, I love this quote. Maybe you've heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you didn't know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, he was... He was a German theologian, and in case you didn't know, World War II happened in Germany, which, by the way, is weird. They produced some of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, and yet it was a disaster of a place. So just knowing the right thing without acting out the right thing doesn't lead to the right result. But I think of Bonhoeffer's words, I think if the church didn't, if we didn't grumble with one another, if we just love better. So he, here I'm quoting from the book Churchless, he says this, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and martyr at the hands of the Nazis, observed that, quote, the church is the church only when it exists for others, end quote. That is, for outsiders. This is an identity that will be difficult to live if we imagine the churchless to be aliens and strangers to our values and priorities. If we perceive the gap between, quote, us, quote, them, us and them, as wide and essentially uncrossable, we are less likely to get close enough to offer ourselves in real relationships. And that is a significant problem. We hear again and again, both from the unchurched in their communities, that loving, genuine relationships are the only remaining currency readily exchanged between the churched and the churchless. See, we're called to embrace this idea of compassion and mercy. Patience in this kind of way doesn't mean sitting idly by. Right? We don't just like go, oh, can't wait for Christ to return and then I can be done with this place. The world's going to hell. No. We're called to embrace God's love and compassion and to live it out in such a way that others begin to see it. We're called to remember that... Did you, do you remember, for those of you who find yourselves and you 
categorize yourselves as followers of Jesus, do you remember what it was like that moment you decided to follow? Do you remember? The moment when you said, you know, I know I don't have my life together, but, but I know there's got to be more than this. I think my life has to have more purpose than this. I think there has to be something worth giving my life to. There has to be more than this. And if what they say about Jesus, that he really did come and live and die so that I could find new life here and for the life to come, if that really is true, then I really want it. And, and if I have to repent or say, forgive me for where I've been broken, where I've sinned, where I've screwed up, I'll say, forgive me. And do you remember that moment when you sensed God's presence in such a way that it changed your very heart? Like that you began to see the world differently? You began to know this divine love that, that the creator of all gives to all people who want it? Do you remember that moment? Changed your life, right? What if? What if? What if you and I lived our lives in such a way Everything that we did was to help others experience that same truth. What would you lay down for that? What would you give up? I hope it's everything. Everything. Because see, at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, God doesn't care what songs we sung in church as long as they were honoring him. He doesn't care what our perfect attendance record was, like I didn't miss Sunday school for 10 years. Awesome. Like he doesn't care about that stuff at the end of the day. It's all good. I'm not saying it's bad. But at the end of the day, he wants us to answer this question. Did you do everything you could, everything you could, for others to know me? Or did you grumble against one another impatiently waiting for them to become spiritually mature? And yet you didn't get it that when you were grumbling against them, you didn't have the spiritual maturity you so desperately longed for them to have. But what if, what if we began to embrace and live and speak and act in such a way that as a community of faith, by our very lives, we said, come, come how you are. Come as you are. Whatever you've got in your life, you're a drug addict, cool, we'd love to have you. <laughs> you're an alcoholic, we'd love to have you too. You're having an affair, come know Jesus. Right? What if we really lived that way and we actually meant it? Right? Those are cool stories. What, what if we said, you know, you struggle with same-sex attraction? That's okay. We, can, we love you too. What, what if the church began to embrace people as they really are and we didn't put up facades and say, oh, ooh, no. Ooh, ooh. I mean, so I'll pick on the guys in this room. Like, ladies, I mean, now you can, this is for you too, but you can. Like, did you know that the, the, that the, issue with porn addiction among men in the church is really not any different than men outside the church. <laughs> oh. But what if, what if we didn't grumble against one another? What if we recognize that the biggest truth for us to get from this passage today is this, God is full of compassion and mercy. And the epitome of that is love. It's who Jesus is who he invites his church to be. So the challenge for you and I is this. We live in such a way that we just remember. We remember what it was like to encounter Jesus for the first time and invite others to encounter him as well. Will the praise team come?
as we seem come as you are. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to gather together in these moments that you love us in such a way that you invite us to live differently, to not grumble against one another, to not live as a people who are so wrapped up in our own lives that we lack patience with each other. But may we as your church live in such a way that we are patient with one another, that we bear with one another in love. May we be this deep reflection of your love so that the world around us goes, hey, I don't know what it is about people who are part of the church, people who know Jesus, but I desperately long for that. And so, Father, I pray for me and for us that whatever area of our life we need to lay down at your feet, whatever area of our life that we need to give up, whatever area of our life that we find ourselves grumbling about the most, we would recognize there was a day, there was a moment, there was a time when somehow the Spirit of God that's beyond our comprehension said to us, hey, I love you. Will you come and know me? And that you said to us in that moment, will you just come as you are? I don't care about your past or your present, but I can change your present into a better future. Will you come and know me? And will you recognize that that I want heaven to break in in such a way that your life looks radically different and that you are so defined by my love that you would know that you bring heaven by the way you live. So Father, help us to embrace these words of James, to not grumble, but to reflect the God who is full of compassion and mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning?